There are too many times in my life where I've acted to do fairly bold things, not because I had courage, but because I didn't understand reality. You ever find yourself in that situation? I won't tell you the whole story. If you've known me for a few years, I've, I've told it more than once. But once as a very skinny-armed, pop-bellied seventh grader, I thought I would try out for the wrestling team because I was matched in PE that year with the one kid who was even less athletic than I was as seventh grader. And after, robbing, after rubbing Matt's, uh, Rob's face in the mat for a few weeks, I got it in my head that I was a wrestler. I was not. I was a seventh grader um, who excelled at things like reading books. But that's how I ended up wrestling a kid who turned out to be the fourth in the state of Texas who went on to wrestle for Nebraska. And there was no courage in going to meet him because I just didn't understand what I was getting myself into. <laughs> courage would have been knowing what I was getting myself into and going anyway. I just didn't have a grasp on reality. There is a difference between ignorance and courage. As we've journeyed through the Bible, you've met people of courage. If you're new to our church, if you haven't been here in a while, we are on a trip through the Bible that will take us most of this year. We're already one-third of the way through our Old Testament series today. We're going to meet people today of tremendous courage. Israel stands in the story of God's Word in the book of Joshua. They stand on the wrong side of the Jordan River facing the Promised Land. They have some of the most wicked, barbaric people in human history on the other side of the river. They have lived there for generations. These are their ancestral lands. They have settled and conquered them. They have fortified cities waiting for them. Israel was a nation of slaves. For 400 years in Egypt, they had no governance. They had no military. They weren't allowed to own, much less pick up a weapon. And now God is telling them that He will take them across the river and they will meet these wicked people in battle and they will be utterly successful and they will settle the land there, what is still today the land of Israel, they will settle it there for generations just as God had promised. But they had to be afraid. They had evil ahead of them and they must have had fear inside them. The first thing you need to deal with when you read the book of Joshua to make sense of the battles that take place there and the customs of the people who lived in ancient Canaan is to understand just how evil those people were. When Moses addressed the children of Israel in Deuteronomy before he died and Joshua took over, he spoke to Israel and he said this, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. If you've been with us, we started at the creation story and we met Abraham, to whom God promised to make a blessing to every nation on earth. He said, Abraham, from your family, someone will come who will bless all the tribes, all the clans on earth. That's why God speaking to Israel refers back to the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's game time. It's time to go into the land. They will be met with fierce resistance, they think. 
They have every reason to believe this will be a difficult conquest. People don't willingly lay down and surrender their ancestral home. And God is saying to them, I'm giving you the land not because you're righteous, but because they are so wicked. How wicked were they? Here's a snapshot into the customs of one of the tribes in that land. God said to Israel, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. Will you read the rest of that with me? It says, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Contemporary archaeology will show you that these ancient tribes built altars as furnaces and laid their infant children into these furnaces and burned them alive in the presence of their God, being thinking all along the way that that was worship. Those are the kinds of people that a nation of slaves who has no weapons, has no army, has no military leadership, has no track record of success of even being able to provide for themselves, This is a whole new generation. We saw last week the generation of grumblers died off in the desert. Now their children must cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land that God has promised to them. And God had promised to deal with the wickedness of those people 600 years earlier. And all this by way of introduction to get you settled into the text of the Bible that we're looking at. This is what God had said to Abraham way back in Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. If you're tracking with me, what is that 400 years of affliction referring to? That is Israel's time in Egypt, okay? What happens next? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and after the way, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You, Abraham, shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, what does that strange phrase at the end mean? God is saying to Abraham, I know exactly who these people are. They are wicked, but they're not yet as wicked as they will be. And I'm going to deal with them as it turns out some 600 years later. Now, why is this sort of detail in the Bible? Listen, God is a great author. He doesn't waste a word. You ever read a book where you were wondering what the point was? The Bible is not like that. There are sections that you may read and you may not immediately understand why this was important. But if you dig a little bit deeper, it all has meaning. It all contributes to something. And in this case, it's something vitally important that we've almost lost sight of. And that is this simple truth. God is patient and just. I wish I could download that as spiritual thinking software into every American's heart and mind. If you only believe one of those truths, you'll end up with a false God, not the God of the Bible. If you think that God is only patient, you'll end up with an indulgent, doddering old heavenly father who just celebrates everything that people do regardless of how wicked they become, and it's not true. If you only see the justice and the righteousness of God and you see no patience, love, and mercy there, you'll end up with a heavenly tyrant who is simply looking to crush people, and you'll miss the great truth of the Bible, God is love. God, as he actually is, is both patient and just. 
why, as we continue reading the Bible, we understand the reason from one of Jesus' first disciples. His name was Peter, and he wrote in his second letter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. God is not delayed. He is not behind schedule. He has not failed to keep any of his promises, including the promise to judge and to make things right and to deal with evil and sin in the world. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, what? Repentance. The breath I just drew is God's mercy and patience with me and with you. If you have people in your family who don't know God, who aren't walking with Jesus, their life and yours together, God has given you, if you know the Lord, He has given you an opportunity to reach them in love in, as His patience continues to extend to people you care about. What God wants is for them to turn around. That's what repentance literally means. It's a U-turn to stop walking in their own paths away from God and to turn around, reach repentance, and come back to Him. God is both patient and just. But now patience is exhausted, and justice will begin in the book of Joshua, and that's what the story of Joshua unfolds for us. Evil people on the, on the other side of the Jordan River, and because of it, great fear within the hearts of the people. I know that they had to be afraid because of the way that God spoke to Joshua when he gave him his commission. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Isn't that an encouraging way to start a pep talk for the new guy? God doesn't mince words. He's clear. You never have to wonder. God is not a passive-aggressive communicator. He doesn't hint. He speaks clearly. He speaks lovingly and graciously and righteously, but he is clear. God came to Joshua and he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now here's where the fear starts mounting. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. So, what are the instructions? You, Joshua, the, the old boss is dead. You are now in charge. You are my new servant to lead these people. You are to take them across this river into the land that I have promised them. Now, to give you some idea of the magnitude of that, there were at least a million people living under Joshua's direction at this time. How'd you like to lead a million people through the wilderness? You ever tried to take Boy Scouts anywhere? And I, I had the misfortune of being lured out into a few of those expeditions. It's, it's daunting to keep up with two dozen, never mind a million. In the era before span bridges, the Jordan River alone, which would have been at least 10 feet deep at points, for a few commandos to cross over, okay, but for a whole nation to go across a river to face people who as part of their worship burn children alive, who are presumably ready and waiting and perhaps licking their chops from these slaves to bring it on? Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you get up and you take these people into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. And now God is going to give this commission what I want you to watch for because it's the heart of the book of Joshua. God speaks to him and he speaks to us in two ways. 
He gives us commandments, he tells us what to do, and he makes promises, promises to encourage us to do it. And what I'm going to read, I'm going to read it slowly, and I want you to watch and just keep that reading grid in your mind. What are the instructions and what are the promises? Because God is going to weave them together. And the Bible is packed with things that God is telling you to do and promises that God is making to you because He knows that you live in an evil world. And He knows that if you're completely disconnected from reality, you have fear in your heart too. Let me be perfectly clear. If you're not afraid at certain points, you just don't get it. You're ignorant or crazy. Courageous people mean, I understand the difficulty, I understand the risk, I'm moving forward. Courage is not the absence of fear, it's the estimation that something matters more than fear. That God is big enough, strong enough, can be trusted well enough to move forward. And the way God persuades His fearful children, beginning with the one who's talking to you, to move forward into a world filled with evil where we constantly have to face our fear is He will give, along with His instructions, lavish promises. Watch, and watch how God moves between instructions and promises. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. What are these so far? Promises. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Why did God repeat himself? Why will he continue to repeat himself? Because Joshua, if he's a normal, sane man, has to be having a heart attack right now. Heart has to be clenched with fear. So here come the instructions. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according all that is written in you. In it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Will you? Read the last part with me, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why did God keep telling Joshua to be strong and not be afraid? Because his natural inclination was to be weak and scared. And that's me. If I ever give you the impression that I understand everything in this book and obey it perfectly and the Christian life is easy for me, please let me disabuse you of that notion right now. There is evil around me, there is evil inside of me, and it makes me afraid. Every day. That's why God said to Joshua, I have given you the book. I have spoken to you and I want you to be in it. 
I want it to be in your heart and on your lips daily. I want you to meditate over it. I want you to ponder it. Literally in Hebrew, I want you to chew it over. I want you to be thinking about it all the time. And when you have a choice, I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right from it. I want you to do exactly what I told you. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and be very courageous because, here's the greatest promise of all, I will be with you. What's the point of the book of Joshua? Right here. God keeps all of His promises, but it takes courageous obedience for us to enjoy them. And that's vitally important for you to understand because it is precisely at the point of fear that people who are following Jesus, when they feel fear, they think at that point God has left them. And He hasn't. And it starts to take courage and it starts to take faith to follow Jesus. And at precisely that point, you're going to think, I'm in trouble. I'm off track. I've lost sight of God or he's lost sight of me. He is no longer here. No, absolutely not. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thousands of years later, Jesus would gather his first disciples and give them his last instructions. And he would say, you are going to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And I am with you. What do you say? Always. There is never a place where you can be where God is not with you. That is the nature of his faithful love to you. But this is a personal relationship. It's two-sided. There is a divine side that gives promises and instructions, and if you're going to be faithful and obedient within that relationship, if you're going to see those promises actually come true in your life and enjoy them, it's going to take courage. It's going to take faith, and you're not going to be able to see how God is all going to work it out. And that's precisely what the battle of Jericho and the crossing of the Jordan River and virtually everything in it point to. If you did the reading this week, for those of you who are new, we're reading selections of Scripture together prior to Sunday. So for those of you who have done the reading, that's, this is familiar territory. If you haven't done it, let me know on the connection card that you would like one of the, one of the books with the Scripture readings. I'll happily send it to you. Everything that God is going to do now is going to show His power and require their obedience. If you put yourself in the dirt of the ancient world and you stand there with Joshua and hear him tell people what they're going to do next, this story is actually quite funny. Let me explain. First thing they're going to do is cross the Jordan River. There are no bridges. They are going to take a million people off a, across a river that will drown most of them if something isn't done. Here's Joshua's first official act as the leader of Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan. What's it say there? Sometimes we're sitting there reading our Bible and we're reading, Oh yeah, go stand still in the Jordan. Great. What a great, holy, sacred moment. What a word picture. You know, they have the ark, the visible symbol of the presence of God. And they're bearing it between these poles as God has told them to do. And the priests are going to go do what now? 
They're going to go stand still where? You're reading that as if it were the most normal thing in the world. We just don't have enough rivers around here, do we? Your river, our concept of a river is a trickle of water through a concrete, uh, through a concrete structure. Now, we'll go stand in the middle of Santa Ana River, no big deal. We can even take our good shoes. It won't get wet. There's no water here. <laughs> These are instructions for drowning. And this is the very first thing he tells them. Listen, when I became the senior pastor here, I tried to make sure that my first instructions were very easy, very obvious, and very popular. Like this, hey guys, let's go to breakfast. Oh yeah. <laughs> the new guy's buying breakfast. We can do this. I wanted some easy wins right out of the gate. Joshua's gathering the ark of God, this sacred thing that he has told them to build to remind them of his presence and his promises and the people that he has selected to bear it before them as a reminder that he is with them, they're going to go stand in the middle of a river. It's a disastrous first instruction if you're trying to affirm yourself as a leader. So this is what happened. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now, not a word is wasted. The Bible wants you to see what a big deal this is. It adds this little footnote. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down, as soon as they touched the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the seat that is beside the Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. How long did that take? It took all day. And the priests are standing there watching the ground dry beneath their feet thinking, this is amazing. And they would have thought back to the stories they heard from their, from their parents of how one day a man stood before a sea with a charging mighty army behind them. Screaming bloodthirsty war cries and screaming that they were going to slaughter them where they stood just as soon as they got within earshot. And they are thinking to themselves, he is with Joshua and he is with us just as he was with Moses. We're going to be okay. Now what's the very next thing? If you've read the book of Joshua, what's the very next thing they do? I'm not going to read this portion to you, it's a little delicate. But everything is indicated to highlight God's power and the need for their obedience. The very next thing they do on the other side of the river, God speaks to Joshua again and he says, hardly anyone in the nation is circumcised. Circumcise them all. Now, if you're not clear on why that's such an important decision, They've just crossed the barrier that signals their willingness to invade. They crossed over, it says, opposite Jericho. They're visible to them. And the very next instruction is not to set up a perimeter. 
The very next instruction is not to march on and take the momentum of the encouragement of watching a river stop to let you through and go take the fight to them. It says, everybody back to your tent, all the men are being circumcised. You understand the significance? Every man in Israel that could have fought has now disabled. He can't stand in his own defense. He's crippled the army. Does that make military sense? Not at all. But the Bible says that as this was happening, God had made the hearts of the Amorites melt. All their confidence was gone. They were ruled by fear. And rather than attack, they walled themselves and locked themselves inside their town. And Israel had all the time they needed to take this visible symbol of their relationship with God that identified them as no one else to this day. Jewish people still do this. Identified them as covenant keepers, as people in relationship with God. Everyone heals. Finally, they march on and they go to the famous city of Jericho. You should know that Jericho is one of the most excavated sites in the ancient world. It's about nine acres big, apparently. Less than, we're sitting on five acres. They, Jericho apparently covered eight and a half walled acres. Archaeological excavations have discovered two undeniable things. The walls collapsed on themselves, just as the Bible says, and the city was burned with fire. That is beyond dispute. It all happened. It actually, it's actually true. What was the plan to take Jericho? Well, the battle plan from these recently circumcised men to take Jericho is a parade <laughs> featuring a great deal of music. You, don't, you think I'm kidding. Look, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. They were afraid. And there's a lesson there for me. See, had I been running this military plan, this plan to cross the Jordan is insanity, but having done that, I certainly wouldn't disable the army. But they don't, I don't think they could have known that God was working in the hearts of their enemies to make them afraid to even come out. The Amorites could have had success in a day. They could have slaughtered every man where he was in his tent, but they didn't. And that's because in our relationship with God, He is forever working ahead of you, and you can't tell what He's up to, but if you believe in a sovereign God, He is working all things together to highlight His power and to enable your obedience. And if you say at any point in your walk with Jesus, Lord, this doesn't make sense to me, I need for it to make sense before I follow you, then you won't see His promises come true in your life because they require obedience. God will keep all of His promises, but if you're actually going to enjoy them yourself, you're going to have to courageously obey Him. So you're always going to be called to do things that you cannot see. For you can't see ahead of, you can't see ahead of yourself to see how God is going to work it out. Verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Here's the battle plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Can you imagine explaining this to Israel? What are we doing, general? Well, boys, we're going to need you again. You priests with the ark, we need you. Bring the horns. And bring a column of warriors. You see the city? Eight and a half acres. You can see it in one vista. We're going to walk around it tomorrow. Okay, I get it. Recon. What then? Well, the day after that, we're going to walk around it again. Okay. Make double sure they haven't set up any extra defenses. Got it? What are we going to do the third day? We're going to walk around it again. And that's all we're doing? I mean, if it really was about nine acres, how long does it take to walk around nine acres? Not long. What do you think? Half an hour? Not even that. And then they go home. What's happening in Jericho? People are looking out saying, these armies are nothing like us. They're bearing an emblem of worship. They've brought not their soldiers to lead them, they've brought their priests. That box going right there presumably is the symbol of their God. What in the world is going on? Jericho, I believe, is being given time to repent. And Israel is being given time to strengthen their faith because this is military suicide. You just want us to walk around the city? What if they have archers, Joshua? None of this is recorded. I'm only imagining the reasonable questions that arise in the hearts of these people. And this is exactly what happens. It says in Joshua 6, 17, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. This, in, this highlights an incredible Bible truth. God will save anyone who trusts Him, but no one who won't. Rahab was a notorious woman living among wicked people, but she heard what was coming her way, and she believed in God and was spared, she and her family, for her simple faith, no acts of righteousness, no promises to do better. She simply believed God, as all Jericho could have, and God saves everyone to this day, everyone who trusts Him, and no one who won't. So this is what happened. The people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Upshot of all this, the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And it's happening. God has woven together this conversation with His spiritual family filled with promises and instructions, and they have obeyed Him in every point, and in every point that they've obeyed Him, they've seen His promises in all of their improbability come gloriously true. And I wish I could tell you that that's all there is in the story. Because this is the point of the book. God keeps all His promises, but it takes courageous obedience for you to enjoy them. If you're going to take your next step with God, you're going to be afraid at certain points. You're going to wonder if He really is with you. 
Your next step of obedience will require faith from you. That's why Hebrews later says that it was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell, and it was by faith that Rahab and her family were saved. That's the human response to God's instructions and promises. He promises and commands. We respond and we see him do what he promised every single time. But it's not all good in the book of Joshua. And here, as is my custom, I have some confessing to do along the way. Thank you for all of you who were very encouraging about last week's teaching regarding grumbling. Let me tell you why that sermon worked, if it did. I showed you what God beat me up with during the week and let you listen in. That sermon was primarily for me. When I speak about courageous faith and courageous obedience to God, I'm telling you that I, in my own strength, am the last person on earth who's willing to do that. I'm entering a whole new season of life. One of my kids is getting ready to go off to college. Who knows where? And my human inclination is to figure things out for him, manipulate, make phone calls, arrange things, call friends, sort it out, get him on his path. Anybody relate to this? You're looking at me with a mixture of shame and contempt. I'm not sure if I'm alone on this. <laughs> my natural inclination is to fear and to respond to that fear, not with trust with God, but with more hard work on my part rather than staying in the book, listening to what He said, and with courageous faith, with courageous obedience, do what God has asked me to do. That's the struggle of discipleship. It's always the same. Jesus, at the end of God's revelation, says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross every day and come after me. That takes courageous obedience. It's the way it always works, but not everyone in Israel will stand in the firm, courageous obedience that they first enjoyed. They take the city of Jericho and one man, probably out of concern for his own survival, covets some treasure he sees there, and rather than give it to God, he steals it and brings it into his own tent. His name was Achan, and what happened to him and this nation of Israel after him is one of the saddest things recorded in the Bible. His sin cost, the life of, cost him his life, the life of his family, and the lives of 36 other men. Here's the trouble. When courage fails, we try partial obedience. And God doesn't want partial obedience. He wants wholehearted obedience. That's why we call him Lord Lord means boss, it means sovereign, it means ruler of everything. That's why the Bible gives such detail about these matters. That's why the Bible begins with the simple fact that God spoke the universe into existence. What is God highlighting? He is highlighting His great power and the most reasonable thing I can do is trust Him and do what He says. It's not complicated, it's just difficult and there is a difference. Running a marathon isn't complicated. You just start running, and some 26 miles later, you're done. <laughs> it's not complicated. It's just difficult. What does it take to follow Jesus faithfully? It takes staying in His Word, listening to the book that testifies about Him, considering the fact that you say your Christian testimony is the moment you die, your next breath is in the presence of God in glory. Yes? Yes? That's your testimony, right? 
I don't want to die. I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not going to go play in traffic, but I'm not particularly afraid because I am convinced, I am persuaded that when my life here ends, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah? So why is it so hard to do what he says on Tuesday? It's his power and our obedience. That's the nexus where you get to see God's promises take place. And when courage begins to fail, we negotiate with God and we try some, some partial obedience. If you're a music person in this majestic, triumphant score of music that is the book of Joshua, toward the end of the book, some minor notes start to creep in. There's a sense of foreboding, of impending doom that's mixed in to the triumphant musical fanfare of this story. Not only did Achan cost himself and his nation a defeat, later when they started settling in the land, they were only willing and able in some quarters to settle it and to conquer it partially. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. This is one of those details in the Bible, watch it. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. Now the tribes are spreading out. They're taking the land that has been allotted to them. They're going to conquer what God has given them. And the children of Joseph say, we need more land, but we don't want to go in certain places because those people have what? Chariots of iron. And you say to yourself, what's the big deal? What they're saying is they have better technology than we do. Joshua, don't send us there. We're foot soldiers. They have chariots of iron. They've got the upper hand. They've got better technology. They'll kill us. And you read this, if you read it with attentiveness, you look at it and you say, how in the world are they still afraid? Well, how in the world am I? If I sincerely believe that God sent His Son, the same Son that spoke the world into existence, that was with the Father from the very beginning, and that word, Jesus, became flesh to live in my place, to offer God obedience that I did not give him. And now, if I simply trust him and call out to him and ask forgiveness for my sin, he will save me and place me in God's family, and he has promised to be with me every day until the end of the world, and all I have to do is trust him. Why then do I so often succumb to my own fears? This is discipleship. It's at that point of fear and intimidation that God wants to meet with you. The point of all this is that God keeps all of his promises, but it's going to take courageous obedience for you to see them happen in your life. Listen to how the book of Joshua ends. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Just so the reader gets the point, the Bible says, all came to pass. That God is your God. That's why an old Joshua stood before the people and said, choose a side. If you want to return to the gods that your, nation, that your fathers served, 
If you want to adopt the gods that the nations around you still serve, it will be a trap to you. It will destroy you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what Joshua is calling them to is wholehearted obedience because here's the point, folks. Every time, I'm just telling you my personal testimony on the authority of what the Bible says, every time I try partial obedience, that partial obedience is a trap to me. The sin you tolerate today will be a trap for you tomorrow. And I've learned this in these years of following Jesus, none of my partial obedience has ever worked out. God doesn't negotiate. He rules. He's sovereign. And His wholehearted invitation to me with the most lavish promises ever made, including His own Son coming in flesh so that I could be part of God's family, all of those promises are for me and the instructions, the commandments, they are too. Now, what would it look like if your family, what would it look like if the aggregation of families that constitute this church, if we all said to the Lord, we will obey you wholeheartedly? Yes, we will be afraid. Yes, we will admit that it does not make sense to us, but we will grit our teeth and do what you say. And we will wait for all of your promises to come true to us and to come true to our children. What would that look like? That would change the course of this church. That would change the course of our community. That would change the history and the legacy of your family. So my invitation to you, since God has made so many lavish promises to you, is that you hear His Word and that you wholeheartedly, with great courage, obey Him in what He's asking you to do because God will keep every one of His promises we only need to obey Him. Would you pray with me, please? Can I make it personal for all of us by simply asking you, at what point are you tempted not to trust God? The sure symptom of your battle will be what you're afraid of. Where you feel fear, that's the point. That's your next step in obedience and courageous reliance on God. Maybe you're like me. Maybe it's your kids. You love them so much that you fear for them. Maybe it's your witness. You have people all around you to need, who need to hear about Jesus, but you've been choking on your words for months, for years out of fear, not telling them. Maybe it's reconciliation with someone else. You know you need to have a hard conversation and mend the broken relationship, but you're so afraid of being rejected. You're withholding the love that God gave you from them for fear that they won't reciprocate. I don't know. Those are three common areas where people follow, struggle to trust God fully and do what He says kids, sharing the gospel, money, relationships. He owns it all. He's spoken to every bit of it. What he asks from you is courageous faith, courageous reliance, saying, God, I'm scared to death, but you matter more than my fears. I'm going to do what you say and wait to see your promise come true. Lord, unite us in faith and courage there are hundreds of people in this church, Lord, and every single one of us at one point or another is afraid. 
Help us to hear you, Jesus, in our day through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whispering to us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And help us to follow you courageously. And thank you, Lord, that as we go, you will keep every promise you ever made. You did for Abraham. You did for Isaac and Jacob. You did for Moses and Joshua. And you will for us. You love us no less. So help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.